This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van, your host, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Professor Kim Wagner, a professor of British Imperial History at Queen Mary Campus, University of London. Dr. Wagner is a prolific historian and a gifted storyteller. He's the author of several books, including Thugi, Banditry and the British in Early, in early 19th Century India, Stranglers and Bandits, a historical anthology of Thugi. The Great Fear of 1857, Rumors, Conspiracies, and the Indian Uprising of 1857, and Amritsar, 1919, An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre. But today we'll be talking about the Skull of Alambag, the life and death of a rebel of 1857. Welcome to New Books in History, Kim. Hi, Mike. Uh, So would you please tell us a little about yourself? Uh, how did you become a historian of the Raj, the British Empire in India? And more specifically, how did you come to be a specialist in colonial violence, of all things? Well, um, I guess I have to thank, in, in the first instance, my uh, Hebe parents who took me to India when I was a baby. Um, and then who brought Your me Hebe up. Hebe on a my Hebe parents, yeah. Um, who then brought me up on a solid diet of, of British uh, boys' novels, sort of uh, G.A. Henty and... Arthur Conan Doyle, these kind of things. And I guess that just stuck with me and I've somehow managed to turn my childhood uh, readings into a professional career such as it is. So in in terms of um, colonial violence, it's uh, something I've, I guess I've I've gradually uh, moved towards. Uh, My PhD, for instance, was on on the phenomenon of banditry known as the the thugs that people might know from uh, Jenna Johnson Temple of Doom, amongst other things, uh, which was a bit more cerebral project, which was about colonial knowledge, really. But I guess uh, in in my more recent work, I've I've been drawn to um, the kind of violence that accompanied what was ostensibly uh, the civilizing mission. And so I'm, I'm quite fascinated by this inherent contradiction in trying to spread Western civilization, but effectively doing it at the point of the bayonet. And uh, and so often you, you hear stories about uh, Western imperialism, which kind of gloss over the violence. Uh, and that's something I'm, I'm rather keen on, on bringing back into uh, sort of the center of the analysis. Mm-hmm. And what, what were some of your contributions regarding the, uh, the Thugi or the Thug history? Well, it's, it's one of the most pervasive Orientalist tropes, uh, but also one of the least understood, at least at the time. 
Uh, it's more than, well, it's 20 years ago since I did my PhD on the topic. Um, it's a bit like uh, the study of witchcraft in an early modern European context, in the sense that the only sources that are really available are those produced by the authorities who are suppressing this particular type of, of Indian uh, banditry. And so we have uh, a quite interesting uh, conundrum right at the heart of center of writing history. How do you write about uh, a practice uh, which was was in some ways invented by the authorities and is there is it possible to recover voices of people whom the british believe to be sort of ritual stranglers and uh, in a sense write something more interesting about it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in your previous book on 1857 you also emphasize uh history that's difficult to get at um in terms of sourcing with the uh your emphasis on rumors correct so rumors is is one of the few ways in which we can access what uh, might always be referred to as sort of the, the, the mentality of, of, of common people. And in a colonial context, that that the silences in the archive are even more pronounced because illiterate Indian peasants didn't leave uh, much in the way of written sources that we can uh, work with. And but you do have the colonial authorities recording rumors. Um, and rumors are more than just distorted news or gossip. They actually give you, uh, provide a window into popular mentalities because they reflect both people's apprehensions, but also their hopes and aspirations. And so it's a, you know, an interesting way of, of uh, trying to get access to, to a, a part of history, which is otherwise uh, really quite difficult to get at. So in the absence of any uh, written records from Indian rebels and ordinary people uh, who were, for the most part, uh, illiterate and didn't leave any records, uh, written records of their own, um, we really have to rely on whatever we can through the colonial archive. And, and rumors is one of the things that the British, they would record, uh, and they might perceive it as sort of exaggerated news or gossip. Uh, but in in reality, it actually offers a glimpse into sort of the mindset of, of, of ordinary people uh, in the sense that it both reflects uh, fears, uh, especially when it's rumors that causes panic. But there's also an element of rumors in which there is uh, hopes and aspirations that are being expressed. And so it actually provides you some kind of a, a glimpse into how people uh, made sense of, of sort of chaotic events. and and the way that, you know, their life and world around them was turned upside down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. So some of our listeners may not be that familiar with the specific history of the Raj. Can you please give us just a general rundown of the mutiny of 1857? And, and I'm also interested in the various terminology regarding the events of 1857, mutiny, rebellion, revolution, what have you. So in the British context, you refer to uh, the mutiny of 1857, uh, which was arguably the biggest anti-colonial revolt of uh, the 19th century. Mutiny, of course, has connotations of, of sort of a, uh, an illegal or somehow not politically legitimate uh, act of, of betrayal, really. And, and in India today, 
the uprising is is described as uh, the war of independence, and in some cases even uh, revolution. So it's a very very significant uh, event, both within a British colonial history, but also uh, in, in an Indian context, where Indian nationalists of the 20th century, as they struggled for independence, uh, would refer back to 1857 as sort of the first moment that Indians, they picked up arms and, and tried to achieve uh, independence. It is, it is, of course, problematic to impose uh, an anachronistic interpretation uh, and that there was no real sense of a nationalist struggle in 1857. Um, and it was largely uh, limited to the northern parts of India. Uh, so by no means does it sort of encompass the entire uh, subcontinent or even India as it is today exists as a, uh, as a nation state. Mm-hmm. And and so the British, in sort of a, uh, a delegitimizing way for uh, to, to sort of downgrade potential nationalist aspirations, refer to it as the mutiny to make it seem like a criminal act as opposed to a politically organized uh, revolt with an agenda. Correct. Yes, and it did start amongst the Indian troops in British service, and so it was technically speaking. Uh, a mutiny, at least to begin with, but very quickly it spread uh, to the general population, and the Indian rebels mm-hmm. and the mutineers they flocked around the the banner of the erstwhile Mughal emperor, who was at that time based in in Delhi, and so there's no it doesn't make sense to talk about a mutiny when you have the the last Mughal emperor actually leading at least nominally the the uprising, and so I would. The terminology that I right. use is is uprising or rebellion, which are descriptive rather than really uh, political. Right, right, right. So, so these troops that are revolting in this mutiny or uprising are the sepoy army. Who 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 were the sepoys? And um, can you tell us about their composition, uh, the religious background? What sort of religious issues did this army face? Who, who ran the army and its its relationship to um, the British Crown and the and the British East India Company is always a little perplexing for people outside of this uh, field of specialization. Yeah, so right up till uh, after the uprising, uh, eighteen fifty nine, uh, it wasn't British India. It, it was the East India Company that actually governed India. And it's only in 1859 that it becomes a crown colony and the jewel in the crown. Uh, so it, it was run uh, by the East India Company, relying to a large extent on locally recruited soldiers. I mean, it's one of the key things of Western imperialism that it it cannot actually exist without uh, local allies. And that's not just the British Empire. It's not just British India. It's It's a key feature. Of Western imperialism, um, and so the British were uh, during the 18th century as they expanded their hold of India. They were competing with the French uh, at the time, but also various local uh, rulers and, and different powers. And it's the, the distance was simply too far to rely exclusively on, on white British troops, and there are not enough uh, British people at that point of time. Uh, and so the British would recruit uh, local soldiers. And in order to compete with the other 
their other political rivals, they had to offer uh, advantageous conditions. And, and so that meant the British actually ended up recruiting and then establishing what was a high status and high caste army, which was dominated, but not exclusively uh, by, by Hindu Brahmins. Um, there, there were so the the, the Hindus were comp- the inf- infantry was mainly composed of Hindus, whereas the cavalry was, was uh, mainly Muslims. And so the British mm. would, on the one hand, try to impose sort of a European standardization in terms of uniforms and drill and these kind of things. But at the same time, they also had to maintain the loyalty of what was effectively uh, mercenaries. Uh, Indian sepoys had no allegiance or sense of loyalty to Britain or the East India Company, but they did have a sense of belonging within the their regiments. Um, and so there is this sort of tension between the British attempt at, at uh, creating a modern army where you know it has modern drill that uses modern arms, and at the same time respecting the religious uh, sensibilities of the Indian soldiers. And in many ways, the British, they actually were tried at least to accommodate a lot of, of, of local practices and not uh, offend or alienate the troops upon whose support uh, their authority in India really relied. Right, right. And so what what are some of these religious issues? Um between uh, the British who are running this army and their soldiers, uh, but also between um, the different uh, the different groups of soldiers. I mean, there's a there's a Hindu community, there's a Muslim community. Within the Hindu community, there's going to be caste variation, even though it's as you said dominated by upper caste Hindus. But how how did these religious uh, and cultural conflicts amongst these groups sort of play out in the functioning of the army? So one of the ways the British they they uh, managed to uh, run things was to establish a very homogeneous uh, army, and and the irony is that they thought that they were observing high caste practices and, and letting their soldiers observe uh, traditions, but as the British were gradually expanding their control over India, they were disbanding all the local armies, the East India Company army actually became the only place in which high caste Brahmin military tradition survived. So not only were the British um, recruiting, this is only the only real place you could you could find service as a soldier, but that also became the only place that you could maintain a sort of high status um, identity. Um, one of the things that uh, the Brahmins they they insisted on was uh, strict vegetarians. Uh, they, they they don't eat in a mess. They cook their own food. Um, they don't cross the sea, which was perceived as a sort of a superstition. And they were black for what was known as the blacks. Uh, they were afraid of, of what was known as the Black Sea. What it, the high caste fears of crossing the ocean uh, is actually about um, being separated from your family being far away from um, the Holy River Ganges, which means if you die on the battlefield, your ashes can't be spread in that river if you are 
far away. Uh, but also simply if you're on, a, on board a ship, you're not actually able to prepare your own food. And you would have to accept food prepared by someone else whose caste and status you can't really ascertain. So a lot of little sort of technical details pertaining to everyday ritual practices uh, that the British, they actually really tried for a long time to accommodate. But then you have throughout the latter part of the 18th century and into the 19th century, you have conflicts, you have tensions coming up. And there are a number of smaller mutinies when, uh, especially the, the Hindu sepoys, they, they, uh, they break out and they refuse to follow orders as the British are slowly beginning to uh, try and impose greater uniformity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, some of the listeners may be familiar with the story of the Enfield rifle uh, that was coated with, uh, had bullets that were coated with animal fat. Can you speak to the, the legend of this off-sided tale? Yeah, so the, the British, they introduced the new Enfield uh, model 1853. Uh, and it's a new, it's, it's an improvement of, of, of the brown vests, essentially. Um, it's a paper cartridge, so there's powder and the, the, the round ball in a paper wrapping that simply makes it easier to, to load. But in order to ram down this paper cartridge, it has to be lubricated. And so when the, the British were about to introduce the new rifle to these uh, sepoy regiments, uh, a rumor began that um, the lubrication was made of, of the fat of, of, of pigs and cows, which would be of highly offensive, not just to the Hindus, but also to Muslims. And the, and the context in which this rumor becomes uh, plausible is an increased uh, presence of Christian missionaries and a uh, the, Briti- Briti- the British who have so far sort of observed a non-interference policy have slowly began to interfere more in, in Indian society. The East India Company as a trading company has become a colonial state trying to um, ban widow burning, for instance, but also in other ways sort of penetrating into Indian society, uh, applying different types of taxes. And in many ways, transforming India. By 1857, the British, they have been the, the, the de facto sovereign power on the subcontinent for um, you know, more than 50 years. Uh, so life is changing. And since the British are perceived as essentially being Christian rulers, the position of the, the high caste Hindu sepoys in particular gradually becomes untenable. And then the, the rumor of the bullet becomes sort of the final straw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do we know for sure if these bullets were greased with either pig or cow uh, fat? We don't actually. The British at the time themselves did not know it. But the key thing is no sepoy was ever actually given these greased cartridges. So there so is actually they were no never actually deployed. They were never actually handed out to them. Um, and the moment that the British they became aware that that this was causing such alarm amongst their troops, they allowed the sepoys to uh, apply their own grease, which was bee wax and, and coconut oil. But the very fact that the British they changed practice and all of a sudden allowed the sepoys to do it themselves 
in the eyes of the sepoys made it suspicious because if there was nothing wrong with them, why would they then change procedure? So, so the the very existence of the rumor also speaks to the growing distance between Indian soldiers and, and the British officers and rulers more generally. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, Alan Begg, the character of this book, is uh, as it says in the title, a rebel of eighteen fifty seven, and the book is about his skull. And you explain in the beginning of the book how you came to be the keeper of uh, the skull of Alan Bake. Would you tell us the story about your own personal encounter with this history? It's it's one of those uh, instances that all historians they dream about. And uh, when it comes, you just have to seize the opportunity. So I received an email in 2014 from uh, a couple just outside of London who said they had a skull in their possession which had been handed down in the family and it was supposed to come, you know, have some or originate in the uprising of 1857. And so the story was that the skull was found in a pub in uh, 1963, and inside the eye socket of the skull, there was a small piece of paper which gave the name of the man to whom the skull once belonged, Alan Beck, who was supposedly a rebel of 1857. Uh, but it also gave the names of the Scottish missionaries that he uh, was alleged to have killed, as well as the Irish officer who was present at his execution. And Alan Beck, he was executed by being blown from a cannon uh, strapped to in front of the barrel and blown to pieces, which was uh, a technique the British used as they suppressed the uprising of 1857. And so supposedly the, the, the head remained intact and the skull was taken back to Britain by this Irish officer. Uh, and so I ended up <laughs> taking... Um, taking the skull back with me uh, and, and I promised you know I would I would try and do some research on the provenance and also find out what to do what should happen with the skull because this family they they basically didn't want to have the skull anymore and they didn't know what to do with it so I ended up with it and how were you able to verify that this was a skull from mid-19th century India um, of uh, I, I don't know much about the science of skulls, but how how did you go about verifying that this was it was plausible that this that this note was accurate? Um, well, the story as it was told in the note panned out when I did some more research. So the names of, of the missionaries who were killed allowed me to identify where the outbreak took place, namely a small cantonment town on a Sialkot, which is today in Pakistan. So. The facts given in the note panned out. And then I, I, I took the skull to the Natural History Museum uh, in London. And I've also later had forensic scientists uh, examine it. And they confirm uh, as far as is possible the, 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 the age of the skull, but also the, the age of, of the man to whom it belonged. Um, I have not had DNA mm -hmm. tests done, but they would also be meaningless unless you had uh, a sample to match it with. Uh, but everything, in a sense, pans out um, in, in terms of verifying the story. And the um, the officer, the Irish officer that's mentioned in the note, were you able to verify that he was in India about this time? Uh, yes. I, um, I actually found uh, the diary of one of his fellow officers who described uh, his their regiment being present at the execution of sepoys uh, uh which matches up with the story 
and and the, and the officer then resigned a month later and went back to Ireland, and he would then have carried uh, the skull with him. And actually, after the book came out, I was contacted by the family of the officer, um, and they knew of the story, uh, but their version was that he was so disgusted by the British atrocities in India that he resigned. Uh, so they were quite shocked to find out that actually um, he had himself taken a trophy skull home with him. Oh, so the the family had not known that he had taken this uh, this trophy home. Fascinating. No, and they, so um, so the family uh, members actually came to London and and, uh, and apologized in person to the skull, which was a quite um, moving experience. Um, yeah. Wow, that's 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 fascinating, and and of course, all your training in graduate school prepared you for these type of situations, verifying human remains and and dealing with uh, <laughs> the descendants of people who've involved in these acts, right? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, for the first time, <laughs> I actually had to think very very hard about what it was I was doing, even writing. Uh, the story and, and writing, you know, the book. Um, I, I did a lot of research about how do you do this respectfully? How do you treat human remains uh, so that it doesn't just become some kind of prop that you're you're essentially exploiting? But I, I, I try to make that yeah. very clear in in the book uh, that my aim is um, is to restore some of the humanity to Alan Beck. Because the very way in which he was executed and then later turned into a trophy was, you know, was done in order to dehumanize him. And so I, I'm not particularly um, sort of um, mushy or, or sort of um, I'm fairly cynical, uh, but 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 I do feel some kind of responsibility for um, the future of Alan Bay. Or, or having been in possession of his remains, absolutely. Well, so let's let's humanize him. What what were you able to discover about the life of Alan Beg? I mean, he's he's not a household name, right? He's he's an, an average soldier, perhaps. And um, uh, what did who was he? What did he do? What was his role? And why why was he executed in this uh, really grisly manner? So one of the my key problems in writing the book was that I never actually found his name in the archive. So um, the only place I have his name spelled out is on this, the note that came with his skull. So in many ways, the, the book is about the note as much as it is about the skull. So what I did was uh, I sort of created what I've described as a, a Frankenstein biography, where I relied on the other information that we do have about Indian uh, sepoys from this period um, and he was uh, he was a Muslim uh, who had fought for the British for a number of years um, and who then got entangled in these events as they sort of spun out of control during the summer of 1857 uh, the sepoys they break out uh, at Sialkot um, not not that many British uh, civilians or officers are actually killed uh, but then the sepoys, they leave and they take the, the artillery and their arms and they move towards 
towards Delhi to join the other rebel forces, they're uh, cut off along the way by one of these uh, colonial heroes or anti-heroes, if you want, namely uh, John Nicholson, who is an absolute uh, psychopath. And they're essentially decimated. Uh, Did you say an an absolute psycho? Yeah. uh, William Dalrymple describes him as a great imperial psychopath. Um, he, he, He was... He was famously worshipped uh, by some of his sort of Pathan followers on the northwest frontier. But he also talked about uh, impaling Indians and flaying them alive uh, as he was suppressing the uprising. Um, so, so this is a particular brutal type of sort of uh, muscular Christianity at play here. And during the battle at which uh, Alan Beck uh, and his, his fellow rebels were sort of cut off, uh, that's an account of, of uh, Nicholson cutting sort of the last sepoy standing with his sword, cutting his, him in half. And uh, the survivors were either driven into a river and drowned or they were handed over to the Sikh troops who were loyal to the British uh, and, and essentially executed or, or tortured to death. But there were a handful of these uh, would-be rebels who survived and who fled into the mountains of Kashmir. It's in the foothills of the Himalayas. And uh, Alan Beck was among them. And they actually made it all the way through the mountains to the border with China, where they were turned back. It's a border to, uh, with Tibet, but it's uh, governed by China at this point of time. Uh, and they were actually turned back by Chinese uh, authorities and handed back to the British. So a year later, Alan Beck is taken back to Sialkot, the scene of his alleged crimes, where he's executed in this very exemplary manner. One of the things I did find out during the research of the book was he was actually uh, innocent. He did not kill those missionaries. And I know that because it was somebody else who was very clearly identified as the the murderer. So um, Alan Beck was strapped to a cannon and blown to pieces uh, for crimes he didn't commit. Hmm. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can you, can you say a few words on trophy taking, um, this uh, practice of taking human remains, uh, in this case, the skull from the battlefield and taking it back back to um, uh, back to Europe. How common was this in the history of colonial warfare? Are there other examples? And is this a racialized practice? Does race factor into this history? So trophy taking, when we think about it today, is often associated with sort of irrational behavior and and rogue individual soldiers sort of taking things into their own hand, being traumatized by the death of their comrades and then mutilating the enemy. And uh, it took place on a large scale during the Second World War in the Pacific against the Japanese, uh, but also in Vietnam uh, in, in the second half of the 20th century. In the 19th century, it was far more common than we usually think. And one of the reasons is that trophy taking as sort of a personal uh, act that reflects on the masculinity of, of the 
colonial soldier. Uh, it's it also sort of laps, um, overlaps with, with taking souvenirs. But it's almost impossible to distinguish between the scientific collection of skulls uh, for scientific and therefore rational purposes. And of course, this is a period of time in which phrenology and craniometry are, are you know, accepted uh, sciences. Uh, it's almost expected of colonial officers, not just within the British Empire, but all sorts of Western explorers, travelers to Africa, Australia, to collect specimens. Um, and it is very much racialized because uh, in the mid 19th century, certainly before and, and also long after, indigenous people are quite often not recognized as, as fully human, uh, but rather seen as part of the natural flora. So if you collect specimens of exotic flowers and animals, birds, monkeys that you stuff and send home, you've discovered new species of this or that. In, in, in much the same vein, you would also send home a skull of a local, whatever they might be. Uh, and that was uh, fully acceptable, that was socially acceptable and even respectable practice. Um, but then you also have colonial military personnel who literally, I mean, sometimes they kill people in order to get at their heads. Uh, and there's a trade in skulls. And one of the things I try to show in the book is that there's actually very little difference between somebody collecting a skull for his personal gratification or for putatively scientific purposes. The assumption is that a skull has some kind of intrinsic value and owning a skull is meaningful uh, and, and, and a sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. But in warfare amongst European powers, would this be a common practice? Was there skull taking in the Napoleonic Wars in Europe or in the Franco-Prussian War? No, I mean, that's that's one of the, the, the key defining traits of, of colonial uh, warfare. Um, it is very much racialized. You don't collect, uh, you, you, you don't... Um, Desecrate the enemy body when that enemy looks like yourself and, and when you respect them as being equal to yourself. Uh, it does happen on a small scale during the American Civil War. Um, but there's, there's some instances recorded of that, um, which again might have things to do with, with race. But of course, in, in the, in the Indian wars against the Native American uh, people, uh, human trophies are taken all the time, and of course, the, the practice of scalping is is is, is an example of that. Um, it's something that's really quite interesting because headhunting is one of the most emblematic uh, practices associated with savages, uh, and yet when we look at it his historically. Is actually the Western power. It's a white man who is the headhunter. If we look more closely at it, the idea is that taking a skull and and, and putting it on your mantelpiece, or putting it in a, in an exhibition case in a museum, is rational uh, and even enlightened. Um, but in fact, it's 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 little different than a headhunter in New Guinea 
taking a skull from an enemy he is slain and taking it home. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the two examples from American history that you gave are of wars in Asia, in the Pacific theater against the, the Japanese, and then in the American war in Vietnam. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I don't think that the, the racial aspect is, is really, um, there's no way that's, that, that, that's absolutely central to the story. There are also um, the American uh, fighting in the Philippines in the early 20th century. There are also records of um, skulls being taken. One thing we have to remember is that museums in America and Europe are cramped full of human skulls. And they used to be taken from criminals or the destitute and poor uh, in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century. But with racial science and European expansion into the non-Western world, uh, it is it is non-white people who whose skulls uh, are taken on on such such a scale that actually some indigenous people they started noticing it, uh, and we we have an account from a a Dutch trader who was talking to the Zulus who were fighting the British in the late. Uh, 19th century, 1879, during the Second Zulu War. And these warriors actually asked the, the, the Dutch traders, why are the British collecting our heads? Are they making some kind of medicine or is it a present to their queen? So it's not as if this is, is something that happens once in a while. It's, it's, these are not uh, exceptional examples. It's actually quite systemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you speak to the, uh, the violence of the execution? Uh, you mentioned that these uh, Alambeg and, and the other uh, accused rebels are tied to cannons and the, can, the cannon is uh, fired and, and blasted through their body. What's, what's the purpose of such an elaborate form of execution? Why not simply uh, cut their heads off or shoot them in front of a firing squad? And, and who was there for these executions? So, so there is a, a wide range of, of execution techniques that the British they use. I mean, it's it's an absolute slaughter as they're suppressing the uprising, and they would they would hang people left and right, and also just shoot people inside of the road sometimes. Uh, but the execution by cannon uh, really becomes crucial in in reestablishing British authority. Um, it's it's originally a Mughal practice, and it's very explicitly. Uh, intended to deprive both Hindu and Muslim funeral rites because the body is destroyed, so you can't bury or burn people. So it's a culturally specific type of, of uh, spiritual warfare, really, that, that's aimed at, at preventing um, the afterlife. Um, and again, you see, this is the British are supposed to be the civilized uh, people here, but the logic is that uh, the only language that Asians understand, South Asians in this instance, is that of violence, but it's not just any violence. So it has to be culturally specific, which is one of the defining traits of colonial violence. You can't, hanging them is not enough. Uh, just shooting them is not enough. It has to be something that speaks to their cultural sensitivities. You can almost talk about an orientalization of colonial violence in this context. Um, and at these, I mean, it's not something you, you don't blow people from a cannon uh, in, in 
in private, so to speak. It is, it, it is intended as a spectacle. So what the British they would do, they would line up the other Indian regiments to watch this, as well as, as local Indian villagers. And they would sometimes literally have the innards and remains of their comrades blown into their face, you know, in a shower of burning flesh um, as a warning. Because this, is, this differs from the European ritual of public execution, where the audience, there's also an audience in hangings, for instance, uh, but they, the, the people, the spectators are supposed to acknowledge the justice of the execution that takes place. In the colonial context, all non-white people were perceived as potential rebels and therefore the message of the execution was aimed at everybody. So in some ways it becomes quite clear that British don't really care who is executed because what really matters is that there is this sort of pure, a message of pure force, a brute force that signals that the British are in charge, and this is what happens if you challenge colonial rule. And what could you speak to the violence of this challenge to colonial rule? What was the violence of the mutiny? The note claims that Alambeg had uh, killed some British uh, British missionaries, correct? Um, both uh, male and and female. Um, what what types of violence did the rebels of 1857 engage in, and um, how how was this violence perceived by the uh, the British? So the kind of violence uh, that occurred against the British uh, in 1857 and against European civilians um, was in some way similar to that which you see uh, during slave rebellions uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the 19th earlier 19th century as well. Uh, it is brutal uh, and indiscriminate in many, many ways. Uh, so men, women, children are killed, sometimes burned alive, sometimes butchered. Uh, the assumption is, and this is where race against comes into play, was that if, if, if white women had been murdered, they had invariably been raped before. And whether there's a, there was any evidence of that is, is, is beside the point. The British perceived white women uh, being subjected to any kind of violence by, by dark-skinned men that, that turned it into a, a threat of, of, of sexual violence, which was an affront to white male masculinity. And therefore, the response became uh, the sort of almost uh, insanely exaggerated response. Um, it, it, it is really the nightmare scenario of the colonial, of the colonial world, uh, that of, of vulnerable uh, white women being subjected to uh, what, what what the British also imagined to be the, the sort of sexual um, desires of savage, decadent Orientals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that has, has so much resonance with uh, history of racial violence in, uh, in the United States, for example, lynching and the uh, rape anxieties and so forth. Um, so you, you wrote in the book, this book was written not just against the grain, but also against the scarcity of evidence. What, what did you mean by this? And, and what, what problems did you face trying to source this material and uh, do, do this research? Well, as, as I mentioned, uh, I never actually found Alan Beck in the archive. 
uh, much to, I, I mean, I, I really, I search far and wide uh, in archives in India and in the UK and his name was never there. Um, so I always had to struggle with this sort of silence. The, the man whom I was writing about, I did not have any of his words. Uh, what I did have was his skull, um, which is in, ironically more tangible than his recorded words in some ways. Uh, so I had to make a very conscious decision that I, I, I would never actually be able to recover his voice. Uh, but I, I, I did find it a really interesting challenge to sort of flesh out what would the experiences, what would the history have been, not of a rebel leader or celebrated Indian ruler who, you know, led the rebellion, but what would it have felt like to be an ordinary Indian soldier who got uh, caught up in this crazy whirlwind? Because the, the, the fate of Alan Beck is, is very much one of an outbreak, attack on the British, and then they flee towards Delhi, but then are driven into the mountains. They, they actually, the survivors actually wander around the Himalayas for a year before they are caught. So it's, it's, a, it's a story which doesn't fit easily within the conventional narratives about either heroic colonial daring do or anti-colonial nationalist heroes. And, I, and I, I thought that was a real, really interesting challenge. Uh, some of the things that, that I used was uh, the letters that sepoys would send to each other uh, before the outbreak happened, where they would sort of say, what are you guys going to do? We hear there's been an outbreak here. And, you know, these this other regiment says we should join them on this and that date. So there's all these sort of, again, rumors even as the outbreak is happening about, you know, who's going to blink first and who's going to take the next step. Uh, and in many instances, it's actually the, how the British respond, which determines whether or not the Indian sepoys remain loyal. And, I, and I, the, the issue of loyalty and betrayal uh, is, is crucial here, of course. Mm, yes. And you, you write in the book, my particular take on the events of the Indian uprising will not appeal to everyone. And for those who prefer their Raj nostalgia or Indian nationalist mythology unchallenged, there are literally hundreds of books that will provide reassuring and politically edifying narratives. This book is not one of them. So what is your particular take on the uprising and how does it fit into this historiography, which you indicate can oftentimes be uh, polarized between Raj nostalgia and nationalist mythology. Well, history is, is so often uh, written um, not just by the victors, but also within particular political contexts, which come to overdetermine them. And, and uh, I obviously don't have much time for Raj nostalgia, but I also find the, the response, which you still see amongst uh, many Indian writers today, or at least in the in the sort of popular imagination, is is a rosy-tinted one of these sort of Robin Hood characters breaking out, um, where in many ways uh, facts and and the complexities and nuances of the past are lost as events such as the uprising of 1857 is yoked to a very particular agenda. And uh, so that was something I was very keen to avoid. I mean, there's a huge literature about 
these events. Uh, but there is something I've noted is that the better known events are, I think I, I want to call it something like the Titanic or the D-Day effect. Uh, the more books that have been written, uh, the more certain stereotypes uh, and falsehoods are perpetuated because there's just such a body of literature that historians rarely go back to scratch. They always build on what's already there. Uh, and, and so what I always try to do is sort of almost deliberately ignore the historiography and really bury myself in the archive and, and, and try and, and get a, a more immediate sense of how one might reconstruct the past. It might be a slightly idealistic uh, approach, but I, I find it when it's particular, particularly events that are very sort of heavily imbued with political significance, it helps uh, very explicitly and deliberately trying to sidestep the politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. So, um, did you receive any pushback on uh, on this book and on your uh, depiction of 1857, um, either from proponents of Raj nostalgia or proponents of a of an Indian nationalist mythology, as you phrase it? Surprisingly, very little. Uh, I think the fact that it, the, the story was about one man and about one man's skull kind of made it really difficult for for any uh, conservative people uh, to sort of argue that you know I was I was trying to demonize uh, or, 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 or somehow malign Western imperialism. The, the story, in a sense, speaks for itself. Um, and I've, I've I've only received very positive feedback, really, from from uh, from an Indian context, because uh, this is an this is in a in a way a forgotten part of the of the history of of India and of the uprising. And I've sought to yeah provide some kind of humanity or show at least some light on you know somebody who fought was what is perceived to be a, a, a war of independence uh, and so so far um, it's been positively received mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well I, I had the pleasure of teaching it in a graduate seminar last year and my students loved it so <laughs> well, you won over 15 Americans um, so w where is Alan Big's skull now and what do you hope to uh, to, to do with it to see what happened Alan Beck's skull is uh, in a museum box uh, in a cabinet right next to me. Um, I, 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 I'm still the custodian of the skull. And uh, what I wanted to do, I want to write the book in order to bring some attention to the story uh, so that he could be repatriated. And so my aim has always been to return him to India and to provide him with a with a respectful funeral and to some extent put an end to this story because the when you take a trophy skull you're depriving the individual uh of of, of any kind of closure and uh, again I'm, I'm not particularly um superstitious or anything like that but um since I, I I took custodianship of the skull, I do feel it is my responsibility to bring to, to bring some kind of closure 
to this story and uh, and, and repatriation is, is the obvious uh, way as far as I'm concerned. My biggest worry is that you know he, he would end up in a museum somewhere or a storage room. So um, uh, the key issue now, and I'm working with, with Indian institutions as well as British ones, is to is a physical transport of actually bringing Alan Beck back to India. You can't just uh, you know take a skull in, in, in your suitcase and, and go home. Well, you, you could conceivably, but I don't want to really be stopped uh, by airport security. Yes, that could prove a little problematic. Um, do Does the current political situation in India uh, pose any problems here with um, the rise of the BJP and, and, and Modi's Hindu nationalism? Um, this uh, Alam Beg uh, was a Muslim. Um, is that does this play into tensions within India or um, India Pakistani tensions? Well, Alam Beg is not the most obvious patriot uh, to repatriate, uh, and so I've actually received very little attention from official Indian hold, which you know is, is fine with me. Uh, but he's he he is unlikely to be celebrated uh, the way other um, explicitly Hindu figures are. Um, in Pakistan, the events of 1857 don't really figure that large. They don't loom large, sort of in, in, the, in the nationalist uh, or the national uh, narratives. Uh, so, so the obvious place of of repatriation is India. Um, is India? Uh, yeah. So as we get ready to wrap up, I was wondering if you could say a few words on the popular view of empire in today's post-imperial Britain, and how do memories of empire resonate with certain issues in British politics, um, say Brexit and uh, Britain redefining its place uh, in the world today? You brought up the B word. Um (laughs) <laughs> this, this 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 book was written uh, in 2016, uh, so it is very much sh- in the shadow, not just of Brexit, but also Trump. Um, Empire in the, Britain. The T word. <laughs> Sorry. The T word. Sorry. Yes. I'll, they'll, they'll edit that out. You can start over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So the debates that are taking place in the UK today is very much about the legacies of the empire uh, and uh, whether or not people should feel pride or shame, which is not a particularly useful way of looking at the past. And and much like the, the calls for the removal of statues of Confederate generals, you also have calls for the removal of uh, statues of uh, Cecil Rhodes, for instance. And what it really comes down to is a kind of identity politics. So any kind of uh, historical exploration or or studies that focuses on colonial violence, slavery, economic exploitation, are perceived as being explicitly anti-imperialist and therefore product of the left. Uh, And there's a certain generation and a certain... um, British people who still 
think fondly of the empire, uh, who really dislike what what I would simply describe as as, as you know, scholarly studies of imperialism. So it, it is in many ways far more politicized than uh, it has been before. Uh, this kind of work. And the interesting thing is, I don't perceive this book as as a work of, of as critique of, of of British rule in India. Uh, I think if you read it and you walk away thinking that oh the the Raj was on you know some unfortunate incidents happened, but by and large it was a force for good. Uh, I, I've obviously failed, but I don't feel it's necessary to say oh this was a bad thing or or that it was a good thing. I, th I think these labels uh, are too easy and they lend themselves too easily to a, a kind of politics which are not conducive to historical understanding. Uh, but again, I, I think mm -hmm. the fate of Alan Beck uh, speaks for itself. British rule in India was indisputably uh, based on a racialized logic and in, in, in some instances, extreme and extremely brutal violence. Yeah. Well, Kim, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but before we go, um, let me ask you about what comes next. Now, I, I noted earlier that you have a book on Amritsar 1919, which actually just came out on this, um, the uh, centennial of Amritsar, and I hope to have you back to discuss that book. Um, but as a way to finish this conversation, will you please tell us uh, what else you are working on? Uh, I know that at one point you were very interested in the American experience in the Moroland, the Muslim-majority islands. Of the southern Philippines, is there a book on this project in the works? Uh, yes, there is. I mean, I've gone from from bad violence to more bad violence. Only this time, it's it's American. Uh, so yes, I, I'm working on a project on the colonial origins of the war on terror, and I, I take uh, the T word. I take Donald Trump's uh, anecdote about General Pershing and the use of pig's blood against Muslims as sort of the framing uh, anecdote. Uh, a, a lot of histori American historians have argued that this never happened, but the fact is that it did. And the American troops who did use pig's blood were actually inspired by events such as those I've just described in the context of, of the British suppression of the uprising of 1857. So it's actually part of a, a much bigger story of, of trans-imperial expertise in, in violence. Um, so I'm I'm... In this book, I'll be challenging uh, notions of American exceptionalism as much as, as British uh, exceptionalism when it comes to empire. Well, that sounds fantastic, and I, I look forward to seeing that in, in print. So, uh, Kim, thank you so very much. It was a real pleasure to talk with you, and I hope that we get to chat again soon about your various projects. Certainly was, and I hope we'll talk again. Okay, thank you so much. Again, this was an interview with Kim Wagner uh, regarding his book, The Skull of Alam Beg, A Rebel of 1857. My name is Michael Van, and this was a podcast from uh, New Books in History on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>